Hello, this is Michael Curtis, the writer of far too many things, and you are listening to Strange Voices on the Internet. I, I mean, uh, save or die. <laughs> Welcome, one and all, episode 114 of the Save or Die podcast. I am your heavily Benadrilled host, DM Mike, and with me is a zero-level character funnel's best friend, DM Jim. <laughs> who's, who's a little nicotine-deprived today, so maybe I could use some Benadryl. Hmm. And also with me is the woman who threatened to beat me to death with a bag of oranges if I came up with any cute comment for her. DM Liz. <laughs> I got an orange with your name on it. <laughs> and this episode is going to be part one of a two-part interview with Bob Bledsaw Jr., the son of the famous creator of the Judges Guild company from the 1970s and 80s, which has recently been reborn and producing various uh, old-school reprints and potentially new projects down the line. But we'll talk to him about that as that comes around. But before we do, does anyone have any announcements they would like to make before we go to commercial break? We're not doing emails or anything this time because we're trying to maximize time with Mr. Bledsaw. So what did we do in the announcements this week? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to give a, a huge shout-out thank you to uh, James and Rhonda Cody, the owners of the Book and CD Hut in Somerset, Kentucky, who celebrated uh, yesterday their one-year anniversary of their ownership of the store by uh, inviting me down to run some Mutant Crawl Classics for a crew. You know how they say you can never go home again? I grew up in Frankfort, Kentucky, you know, and I drove down to Somerset and ran – my favorite game I've run so far for a whole group of relative strangers. They played, this group of uh, guys in their 20s and 30s and uh, one teenager played like we used to play back in the day. It was like I went back home through a time machine and ran a game for my old crew. <laughs> so, every, cool. I mean, real good problem solving. So, thank you very much for having me down and I greatly enjoyed the opportunity to do it. Cool. Alright, well, I gotta give a mea culpa here. Um, Clangador called me out on my uh, coverage of Gaz 3, where I had uh, attributed Amber to Zelazny, and as the references for some of the Castle Amber stuff, and he actually pointed out that it was the Averroin by Clark Ashton Smith. And so, my bad. Take away my appendix in card. Well, you... I mean... Appreciate me a culpa. I'm all about it too. But you weren't completely wrong because it was a blending of both. Yeah, yeah. Um, so half a, I guess culp. So, <laughs> just, yeah, just a culp. Just culp. And <laughs> the only other shout out I'd like to give is for a book series I've recently discovered, thanks to Mage in Black, called uh, Critical Failures, uh, written by Robert Bevins. Um, it's the CNC Caverns and, Caver, yeah, Caverns and Creatures series. It's basically a prose version of Knights of the Dinner Table, only not safe for work. And what if they found themselves transported into their characters' bodies? Nah. Hilarity ensues. I hate it when that happens. Don't you, though? Yeah, especially when you choose a half work barbarian. But oh, anyway. My- Characters generally have better stats than I do. <laughs> <laughs> These guys don't. One of the characters 
as a half-orc barbarian who has a charisma of four. And let's just say he has to deal with that throughout the entire book. But it's cool. Pick it up if you have a chance. Uh, he's got a lot of short stories that are only like two bucks or two fifty on um, Amazon. So if you're not sure, pick up one of the short stories, read it. If you like it, then you'll probably like the book series. So, without further ado, let's get back to extremely important announcements. And then we'll head directly into a discussion with Mr. Bob Bledsaw Jr. Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Want to help support the show? Why not head over to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash WGP. That's patreon.com slash WGP. And help support the network for as little as $1.50 a month. That's right, $1.50 a month goes a long way. Thank you. Zach Glazer, head of Lesser Known Games here. In November, we will be running a charity game using our newest box set, Death and Taxes, to support the Extra Life Foundation to benefit Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. <coughs> um, you can support this effort by going to extralife.org and making a pledge in the name of Robert Glazer or going to lesserknown.com slash children. Robert Glazer? No wonders you go by Zach. Listen, let me show you how to do this. I cast Charitable Contributions. You will now go to extralife.org or lessernome.com and make a generous donation to Help Children's Hospital. You can even write it off both your death and taxes. See what I but, did there? But Don't interrupt me! And my Saber Die Podcast minions will have a nice pledge link right on the webpage of this very episode to make that easy. Ah, that's great, Thopus. Thanks. Don't mention it, Robert. It's game time. I think I play too much. People say it's weird. We should cut back. That's insane. Game, Mrs. Hudson, is on. Look at it! Game on! Game on! Game on! Invite them. Game on! Hop on them. Game on! Say it proud. Game on! Through the crowd. Game on! No one has to please. And we're here with Bob Bloodsaw Jr., Owner and operator Hello. of Judges Guild. Hi, Hello. Bob. Glad to be here. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Glad you can make it here with us. Thank and you. we have one or two quick questions for you. <laughs> Wonderful. I two. hope it's more than two. Or <laughs> or oh, sorry. I meant one or two quick pages of questions. <laughs> sorry. Great. That's great. And we'll start with who wants to go first? Uh, I'll jump in. <laughs> okay. Go for it. Woohoo. Okay. Uh, our first question that we have for you. Um, prior to founding Judges Guild and becoming associated with D&D, what were your father's gaming interests? Yes, what led him to doing Judges Guild? Um, he was always into games, and he was always up for a game. Um, anyone that knew him from his early years... Uh, knew that he loved games, everything from chess to strategic war games. Um, speaking for myself, um, he taught me to play chess at age four. And by the time um, I was five, he had given me a book on Roy Lopez, uh, wh where from I memorized some uh, opening moves, which allowed me to beat adults by age five. Wow. And so, um, And as soon as I was able to grasp... Um, strategic war game rule sets. Um, we were playing Tactics 2, we were playing Jetland, the Avalon Hill line. Um, he really loved those games. Um, he had he, he knew Lou Zaki from the early days because he recognized that Lou worked on uh, Avalon Hill's Luftwaffe and several other things like that. So he was a fan of Lou uh, way before, uh, like 10 years before Judges Guild was even created so influences was strategy strategy based games he loved them um d-day midway um squad leader we played all of those games pardon panzer blitz yes panzer blitz too yes we wow. played we went through basically the whole catalog all the way up to things like uh rail baron and 
Saxon Five, and there was a horse racing game they produced, and just all kinds of. He had basically the whole Avalon Hill catalog. It was it huh. was when I was very young. Uh, David Petrowski, his cousin, the one that introduced him to the ICD gaming group, which was Bill Owens, who really introduced Dad to D and D and. Mark Summerlot, who introduced Dad to the rule set of the original box set. Um, ICD? Yes, ICD was the gaming group that Bill Owen ran in Decatur. Is that an and, acronym? Um, yes, it, it's uh, it's actually covered in the book uh, Bob and Bill, a, uh, a cautionary, cautionary tale. tale by, <laughs> yes, by Bill uh, by Bill Owen. Yes. Okay. But um, I'll let Bill tell that story, but. Um, <laughs> Well, that kind of ties as, that kind of ties into a question I wanted to ask before we get to your dad discovering D and D. I always wondered yeah. which he, he, that background you just uh, gave us sounds so much so similar to Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson's backgrounds. So, yes, and that's why they all they they all kind of ran on the same thread. They were very similar people. I have a feeling I know the answer to the question, but I want to ask which came first: your father's interest in creating and publishing his own game materials or his discovery of D and D. Uh, he definitely already had um, game plans in line. He had created things like um, he had created two games basically himself. One was um, uh, called Checkpoint, spelled C Z E C H, point, <laughs> um, based on Checkpoint Charlie. It was uh, basically a Cold War espionage uh, infiltration that involved a player's map and some counter cards. Um, the other game he created was um, Martian America, whereby you would use a key in order to uh, take your hometown map from your Ma Bell phone book or whatever you had and convert it to a player's board whereby you could defend your uh, own hometown from uh, Martian invaders. It was very tongue-in-cheek, and it had a lot of B-movie Undertones uh, to it. It had humor built into it, um, but it allowed, no matter where you bought it from, it allowed you to convert your town into the playing field. So that was probably 1974, uh, uh, way before he met um, Mark Summerlot and was introduced to D and D. I'm insanely jealous because you and I are within a year or two of the same age, and I came to gaming much later because I didn't grow up with uh, Bob Bloodsaw Sr. as my dad. Well, it sounds like that was fantastic. Because, because at North Texas Con, I've announced this to a handful of people. I actually played my first D&D session at last year's, or this year's, North Texas Con 2015. I've I've watched the games played. I've sat in and took notes. I made um, a lot of observations, and I put together the games, but I'd never actually played a character in a game until Frank Menser gave me the opportunity to play. And part of the reason for that was my father said that Frank Menser is the only man that really knows how to judge a D&D game. He always referred to judges instead of game masters because he didn't like the the overtone of calling it a master. Um, he preferred judge or referee. And so judge um, is coming back in style. Thanks to DCC. <laughs> I hope so. Yes. But yeah, that was, that was dad's play on words. Well, how did you enjoy your time with Frank running the game at North Texas? It was a real eye, eye opener. I didn't really, um, I was very rusty as far as the mechanics of the game goes. And so at first I was kind of like, I want to play in the background um, but he he kind of put me in the forefront because of the character I was I had, and partly because he assumed that I knew extensively how to play a character in the game, <laughs> and so uh, um, I did very well, surprisingly. And uh, no one was the wiser that it was actually my first game session playing a character. And <laughs> so at the end of the game, I announced it to everyone, and they were a bit taken aback. They were really surprised. For me, it was kind of embarrassing, but it was uh, it was a good feeling because I was actually able to do it with the one fellow that Dad said actually ran first edition the way it should be run. Um, that's Frank Mincer. And of course, high. I got to ride with him on the on the plane ride back to Chicago, so it was great. 
That's pretty high praise coming from the guy who co-founded Judges Guild. Yeah. I didn't really co-found Judges Guild. That was my dad. No, I mean your dad. Your dad's praise. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, yes, of course. He he really admired uh, Frank's way of um, playing the games, and he admired the red box. So, As yeah. do we all. <laughs> Except Mikey Mason. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't going to go well, there. we all have our preferences. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but thanks for going there. You're welcome. <laughs> well, okay, next question? Yes, I have one right here at the ready. Um, so tell us a little bit about that first D&D campaign where your father was introduced to it, and I'm especially curious, given what we just talked about, how quickly he segued from being a player to running his own campaign. The way it worked was, and this is from what I understand, um, Dad was introduced to the rule set um, by Mark Summerlot at a, at a meeting, and it wasn't really a gaming session, but Mark uh, introduced him to the rule set, and Dad had leaped through it and asked Mark, can I borrow this from you? And of course, Mark never got it back. But um, <laughs> This would be like the little brown books in a white box. Yes, and that was because um, Dad was very much a reader of things like Edgar Rice Burroughs, and that's his tie to Gary, and and he was very deep into the, you know, the whole John Carter of Mars and Robert E. Howard and everything back to H.G. Wells. He was a voracious reader. And um, that was where he got his first um, glimpse, of course, of the Frazetta covers. And he ended up becoming friends with Frazetta. And uh, How awesome is that? That that was very awesome, but for me at the time, honestly, I was just a kid grow, growing up, and so Frazetta to me was just a guy on the phone. And so when <laughs> I was in, um, honestly, when I was in high school, I had no idea of his actual fame. I knew that we had been selling his prints for years and things like this, but um, uh, for example, one day I had a problem with a art project. I was in college taking art courses, and I was stumped on this one part. I was just at a block. And so I called him and asked him for advice on it, and his wife answered the kitchen phone. And he, she hollered back to the back of the house, uh, Frank, it's Bob Bledsaw. And he said, which Bob? And she <laughs> said, Bob Jr. And so he came to the phone, and it was a – and actually, I was doing an acrylic, but he was used to oils. And he, he said, well, I keep a, I keep a mirror by, the, by, the, um, by where I work so that I can look at the painting from an objective point of view. I look at it in the mirror, and I see it as if someone else has just walked into the room and seen it. Because you can look at a piece of artwork too long and actually miss things that you think are there. And um, Testify, brother. He just gave me a little advice like that. But I, at the time, I was just 18, and I really had no idea of how actually big the man was. And I probably would have been intimidated if he wasn't a friend that my dad talked to on a regular basis. So, yeah, it's kind of weird. And then later, of course, for Wilderlands of High Fantasy that Necromancer was doing, Bill Webb was on the phone with my dad going, oh, it would be great if we could get a great cover for this. And dad said offhandedly, well, I could call Frank and ask him if he would give us one. And so he called Frank and asked him, and of course Frank <laughs> gave him the cover for Wilderland's Five Fantasy gratis, no no charge necessary. But that was just because Frank uh, liked my dad, and they hit it off. They talked on the phone quite a bit. Well, we I have- sold his prints for years. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> from the early days, you can see in our early like 1977 catalogs, we were already carrying Frazetta prints because. Dad had loved his um, art on the old Pulp Fictions that he used to read, and uh, Dad just respected the man. It's like when we uh, come up with a computer game for the TRS-80 Tandy computer in 1978 um, called Trek 80. My dad wanted a Star Trek game because he loved the series. Y'all and made so that? He, bothered, he bothered to write Gene Roddenberry and got written permission to produce the game. Um, when Dad did um, the the game I mentioned earlier, the um, Martian America, he wanted a sci-fi um, forward for it. So he wrote um, Isaac Asimov and got a letter back from Isaac uh, for um, the preview, the preface for the game. But no it, ended, it ended up never being produced. Yeah. 
Yeah, I had no was, idea you guys did the Trek 80. Yeah, that was for used to the play TV. that all the time. It was on a cassette. Yes. Yeah, we yeah. That. Oh, I did. Wonderful. I, I first on cassette and then on a really, really slow five and a quarter floppy. <laughs> wow. So that's cool. <laughs> Listeners born in the 1980s may not know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. Uh, <laughs> you missed out, guys. Oh, those were the days. about um, Frank Frazetta doing that cover for you guys. Were you doing yes. covers yourself for Judges Guild at that point, or did that happen later? Um, I was doing covers, oh, of course, way before that. My mm-hmm. my first cover was in 77 for the uh, Fortress Batabascore. Uh-huh. And I was only, I think, 14 at the time. Would Would that have um, been before or after you designed the logo that they... Judges Guild used it for years, oh, and, and also age fourteen. That was way after age thirteen when I did the logo, and I did the. Um, I helped Dad ink the original city-state maps. There was actually two of those done, uh, because one was ruined in transit because it was left in the back of a car and got rain on it, and so my dad had to recreate the entire city-state overnight. And Ooh. so I set up with him during that crash course on creating the one that you see most often. Wow. But I was just 13 and sitting at the kitchen table with Dad um, all night, basically, with a little double-lot pin, putting in the stoops and hashing the little dungeon walls and things. That's what I did. That was my earliest work for the guild. 13 (laughs) Schmertine, you knew your way around on a rapidiograph pin, apparently. Well, I learned very quickly. My dad was an engineer, and so I grew up around mechanical pencils and vellum and different types of transparencies to work on and things. So later, picking up things like PMT machines and uh, blowing things up and shooting them down in the dark room was easy. I, 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 was, I was around age-wise, but I wasn't playing D&D. <clears throat> but I know back when uh, the white box and the little brown booklets first came out, uh, Gary Gygax's initial uh, marketing was all very guerrilla marketing, writing articles for some of the fanzines and the general and things like <clears throat> that. And that sort of gave early adopters of D&D the mistaken idea that they could publish their own things, particularly when, when they were things like adventures that TSR wasn't interested in publishing, adventure modules, or in some sense, yeah. the concept as we know it today didn't even exist. So there was uh, a lot of just, you know, like Frontier Town, cowboys out on the West Coast just printing stuff without TSR's permission. How did, how did, yes. how did your dad and Bill Owen get in that context to actually going up to TSR and saying, hey, we'd like to do this. Will you license us? Well, once Dad got the hold of the rule set from um, Mark Summerlot, uh, his biggest, um, I think, drive was the fact that he he always loved uh, Bullfinch's mythology. He loved Homer's uh, Iliad and Odyssey and um, things like that. He loved ancient and Nordic um, mythologies. And so he instantly saw in this rule set uh, the ability to create modules and an entire world um, for people to play and and live out these um, um, epic, you know, Jason and the Argonauts type adventures. And that's why in our, um, like, our campaign maps, our early campaign maps, we had the Strait of Clashing Rocks and things like this that very uh, that pulled from Homer and, and the early uh, mythologies. Dad loved that stuff. And so that was, he saw that um, there was a vehicle, a, a mechanism by which he could make these adventures real for people. And he thought, of course, that there could be money in it. When um, Bill Owen and Dad first contacted TSR, uh, their original meeting was to be with Gary that day, but Gary had some sort of business, there were preoccupation in town, and deferred the meeting to um, Dave Arneson. And so... Um, I'm really interested in Dad, how true the story that is always yeah. told actually is, that it was just uh, your dad, Dave Arneson, and a handshake agreement to go publish licensed game aids. Yes, yes, and that was not considered unusual at the time. One of the things I wanted to mention was that um, people like Gary and Dave and my dad, my dad at the time was a Sunday school teacher, Uh, back then handshakes was the way you did business, and you took a man's word as gold, 
and uh, if paperwork was required late, required later, it was um, pumped out. But um, that was uh, how they got the uh, deal. And when Dad came back, one of the first things he told us was the fact that um, Dave laughed. He didn't really think that there was a market in making modules or adventure worlds for D and D. And uh, <laughs> which is funny now, but and, yes, yes, funny now. But um, of course, once you know, you you fast forward a year or so, and TSR realized, hey, wait a minute now, Judges Guild's actually making some money and selling these modules and we better get on the bandwagon. We better. And so, um, my dad's view always was that, um, we're taking away from a piece of the pie that belonged for ages to Parker brothers and Milton Bradley and, and these huge industries like Hasbro. (laughs) It's, it's funny the way the, the wheel turns around in time. Yeah, and yep. Hasbro um, got it back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> they did, and and that's one of the things that once um, once Hasbro uh, produced like uh, fourth edition, I believe. Um, I believe that was their baby. Um, it wasn't received well, and I can tell you what um, not what my dad thought of fourth edition because he had passed shortly before it was released. But I can tell you exactly what Dave Arneson thought of it. He thought that. Uh, the field, the the independent field that these pioneers had created in the mid-70s, um, which took away from the pie of the big five, as he called them, he felt that, you know, big industries like Hasbro and, and Parker Brothers really don't care what happens to uh, fantasy role-playing. Um, they would rather see it die, and they don't really care if it exists um, because it was taking a piece of their pie. These independent upstarts from the 70s were um, were taking from their sales, and so you'd be happy with buying Clue and Monopoly and <laughs> you know forever. So, yeah. not that not that Dave was real bitter about it. It's just that he thought it was very interesting how it came full circle and fell back into the hands of Hasbro. But from that came the OSR, so it circles within circles. Yeah. Yes, it does. And there are many branches. It's like um, uh, a lot of people think that Judges Guild was just D&D, but we, we produced so many other things. I mean, we, we would run with anybody that had an idea or wanted to try an idea. You know, Villains and Vigilantes, so we, we did the first one of those, which was, I believe, uh, what we called Three Kilometer Island based on the Three Mile Island event. And yeah, you um, did some traveler Ones too, yes, correct? we did a lot of Traveler, actually. Um, we actually hired a man that wrote nothing but Traveler, basically, <laughs> uh, Dave uh, Saring. And I worked very closely with him on Darkling Ship in 82. And uh, it was one where I was kind of pleased with it because although my art was not that good because there was actually time constraints put on our artwork, we were allowed uh, 10 to 20 minutes on an ink drawing, and if mm. it involved a color set, maybe 20 more minutes Wow. And that was just to keep our prices so low. If you look at our covers, our cover prices compared to other products at the time, um, we did that by, that's why our artwork always, you know, was very lackluster and it could have been much better if we were given more time, but we were working under very strict constraints. Yeah, but it was the oh. best bargain for your dollar back then. I remembered I love Judges Guild stuff because... well. It was cheap. That's nice and to say, but honestly, honestly, uh, our best sellers came from great authors. It was the material that sold it. It's like um, my dad reached a burnout about five years in. By 1979, he was burnt out. And if you mm-hmm. think about what made uh, my dad a great uh, fantasy author, it was things like Badabascor and Teagle Manor and... Um, the city-state, of course, but that was so much work for him at the time, and he quickly became burnt out, and so he would uh, defer to other authors. He would he would see what other people had to say, and he would run with somebody that necessarily um, were not that good but needed the exposure. So, 
I, I agree with he Mike. He was open though. to try different things. RuneQuest, mm-hmm. um, um, a lot of different things. I, de- sure. I definitely agree with Mike, though, because mm-hmm. uh, although I'm older, we f- we found D&D at basically the same uh, time period. And as a broke college student, I didn't have a lot of discretionary income to spend. So that was my introduction to Judges Guild, was going to the game store and not being able to afford a fancy TSR module. So I'm settling for this Judges Guild product that has the newsprint cover instead because it's cheaper than i yes. get the thing and it's pure gold it's thicker well, you can get three I'm, of them for the cost of a tsr <laughs> module right and well once, that once, was one of the things i heard where you could you could draw and write on one and keep one just for the shelf um <laughs> it was like my dad was um my dad was very aware that he wanted the price as low as possible to get it in more hands he wasn't necessarily interested in a big profit. It's like as soon as D&D started out, one of the first things, or as soon as we started up, one of the first things he did was, um, in our town locally, was because I was involved in chess club, and he was in chess club when he was in school. Um, we started up little D&D clubs within the high schools. And before long, all of our local high schools had D&D clubs. And my dad would provide them with free games and ship free games to them. Actually, he actually even sent free game modules to the jails for um, local inmates to use. Um, oh, yeah. But it, it was it was a strange time. <laughs> well, you mentioned you know he was wanting to get the products into as many hands as possible. Um, yes. After you went to Gen Con. Nine in 1976 to sell the first city-state map, the subscriptions. Um, You formalized your licensing deal with TSR. You had a written contract, and you were able to use the phrase approved for use with Dungeons & Dragons. Um, How did that transition affect sales afterwards? Did that give you a little more street cred, so to speak? Um, Actually... Um, as far as the sales records goes, compared to other things that we were producing or whatever, I can't say as where having the tag on it helped our sales at all or helped our membership because our sales were basically based on a subscription membership. Mm-hmm. Our subscription memberships continued to rise up until the seven, uh, until uh, July of 1982, which is where we reached a real peak. We've never attained that peak since then. But um, having the tag was Dad's way of saying, well, we've got basically an agreement with TSR. We're uh, friends with TSR, and we are, we are producing games for this. My dad was more than happy to put those on. And it was out of his, I think, insecurity. He, was, he would go to Bill Owen, his partner, and say, I don't think we're, we're put, giving them enough material and it was things like um, ready ref sheets, mm-hmm. and which people thought was, man, this is just a, a morass of material here. This is a, a wonderful thing. Yeah. But yet dad was insecure and in going, well, maybe we should put more into it. And <laughs> um, Bill Owen at the time uh, would, you know, just, he was basically like, Bob, I think we're doing okay, you know. And Dad, you know, of course, the blazoned approved for use with D&D on everything uh, that was. and But actually, I think it was out of partly out of his insecurity about the products that he felt the need for it. But um, To ensure that that thing that I just described happened, that when somebody did buy, uh, if every product is somebody's first product, they would see all the, mer- the giant amount of content inside and go, hey, this is cool, I want more. Yes, they they did, and that was what drove our initial uh, membership sales. It was because we were giving them so much for so little. Mm. I mean, it may have looked bad, and honestly, the artwork could have been much better, but we were giving them a morass of material that they could immerse themselves in and give them a thousand different directions to go. We always left things open-ended. We never said, this is the way this has to be. We were never about setting down rules. We would mm-hmm. set down suggestions and then say, run with it. Well, okay, um, that, that leads me to something I'm dying to ask, because yes. uh, as, as a young man experiencing Judges Guild's products, TSR's products, and all the other people, uh, 
including the unlicensed people. I was I was lucky to be there to get like the spellcaster's bible, get my hands on stuff like that. But yeah. uh amongst our crew, we always had a certain respect for the judges guild products because there was a funk to them. Uh the word the term as it's used today gonzo didn't exist then, but but the judges guild material, I mean, you'd be in the middle of a judges guild adventure and suddenly there's a, you know, a a potion stand a got, or a butler Right, right, or some cat wandering an alley that's a demigod in disguise. The, where where yeah. did that? So my question is, where did that really great old school Gonzo come from within the company? Was that your dad? <laughs> it was the gaming group. It was the, all of them. It, we had so many contributors, and the gaming group itself was comprised of very, um, I want to, I want to say, very um, creative people. I mean, Dad at the time was. Uh, he was very straight-laced. He wouldn't smoke a joint for the world, and he would very rarely have a beer. Uh, he was a Sunday school teacher. But the crew he hired, he hired for creativity. And when we were on... Uh, and plus it was the 70s. Yes, it was. And when we were on at university, if our designers was caught in the back having a joint or or having a beer or or something stronger uh dad would you know frown on that but um he knew that that was part of their creativity and the way they got things out we had a lot of influences um I, i'm saying that the group around uh judges guild and the gaming group the core gaming group that was judges guild uh, was um, very creative people. And I saw that again years later once I took over and I got to meet um Joseph Goodman's crew of Goodman Games at their they they were nice enough to uh, host me at the Gen Con in uh, 2014, and uh, I got to meet his crew and listening to them talk and their creativity. Um, it wasn't that they were into substance abuse, but it was the fact that he was surrounded by very good creative people, and it, it was a wonderful thing. And I mentioned it to Joe that um, I thought that was great, that he had a great crew, and that um, so many ideas can flow with that, flow from that, and, and so many great things can come from it. I'm Liz, so, I'm so, have you ever heard of Joe Goodman? <laughs> Joseph Goodman, I'm sorry. Yeah. He does go by Joe, but I'm glad you no, brought... No, I'm, I'm picking on uh, Jim here. <laughs> Who's this Joe Goodman? You ever heard of him, Jim? <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I was... Uh, at the very Gen Con that uh, Bob is talking about, I was making my baby steps to becoming a part of that crew, but I definitely wasn't uh, the, the in, in inside that group that Bob's talking about at that time. I was just making my entrance. But I'm glad you brought that particular Gen Con up, because of all the Gen Cons I've ever been to, Bob, you gave me my single best Gen Con moment upon our first meeting in person, because uh, I think I probably told you this guy's back when it happened, but uh, I just come up to the Goodman booth, I get introduced to uh, Bob, uh, who I'm kind of I'm I'm kind of fanboy a Gaga over getting to meet uh, Bob Bloodsaw Jr. myself, and he goes, I brought you something, and uh, my uh, very earliest days of trying to break into the industry as, at the time, an artist, because uh, I didn't know I could write then, I had sent some stuff, and a, and a writer buddy of mine, together, we'd send in a bunch of stuff to be published in uh, Pegasus Magazine, the Judges Guild published. And so Bob goes, I brought you something, and he hands me this manila envelope, that, or manila folder, that is literally from his dad's files and contains my 18-year-old pen or the arts holder, I was 18 at the time. My best 18-year-old pen and ink fantasy D&D artwork that I was trying to get published that uh, his dad had hung on to in his files this whole time, and here Bob comes and hands it back to me. Art so old, I, I almost didn't recognize it and could barely remember doing it. And, sir, that was the best moment of almost my whole gaming life. Because I don't have it, any it of that. Made, I don't have any of that stuff anymore. It honestly made my day that you were very touched. I'm glad that you were touched by that. But I was glad to return it because it belongs to you. I mean, it's a, it's a piece of history. <laughs> Terribly well, rendered piece of history, but yes, it was. <laughs> I did want to ask, uh, you mentioned about your dad uh, being a Sunday school teacher. Yes. Did, did the folks at Judges Guild ever get any flack from the backlash against role-playing games in the early 80s? Um, about maybe three years into it, around 1980... Um, there was some backlash that came out in the press against D&D. 
mm-hmm. and we began to get letters from the local high school uh, parents who had their children now enrolled in our Dungeons and Dragons groups at the high schools, and they were very concerned. My dad assured them, and a lot of times he would talk to them directly on the phone. It it had nothing to do with, um, and that, and that leads me to another thing. Um, when fourth edition came out and dad had just recently passed away, I was in line to have necromancer games produce uh Teagle manor reproduce Teagle manor mm-hmm. and um they were working on it and and doing great work on it by the way but um it was slated for fourth edition and when fourth edition came out and you were able to actually play the character as Modius as opposed to you know, attack as Modius. You know, you were now actually able to play the demon himself. Um, I felt like that was something Dad would balk at. Yeah. And so I talked to um, not on religious principles, but but just because it's a stupid idea. <laughs> well, well, it was one of the issues that kept me from going to fourth edition, and so I I kind of turned on my heels on that, and I ate a lot of flack, but um. I kind of canceled the work on that. And uh, Dave Arneson, believe it or not, agreed with me and thought and thought that was the way to go. He also uh, told me at the time that um, he had his own uh, products for 4th Edition that he was planning on doing. And he didn't have a contract with, um, I guess it was Wizards of the Coast at the time. And he said, I'm running with it anyway. They've never defended their gaming license in a courtroom and uh i was there at the beginning and <laughs> i can't say what he said but he said um, bleep them <laughs> um, and it was the first time i ever heard uh dave arneson drop the f-bomb but um it was the one of the last times we spoke so yes mm-hmm. um, uh, just so you know it's cool to drop the f-bomb on the podcast oh, we'll just have to bleep okay, it out cool. later we'll, we'll, right. we'll bleep but, it out <laughs> jim will bleep it out Briart. <laughs> yeah, he, he said, "Run with what you want, want, want you with whatever you want, Bob." And I'm like, "Dave, your name carries a lot more weight than mine does." So, I don't know. You may want to cut I, this out too. I mean, as, as far I'm looking, I'm looking here at your website, and you've got an in memoriam of page. And of course, you don't have to put my dad in, but by God, you should have Dave Arneson in there at least. You're, you're absolutely correct, and I will personally att- attend to that. But some sections Thank of the you. website we forget are there, and they get neglected. Thank you. I'm just jabbing. But go ahead. I think Vince built that part of the website, didn't he? Back in the day, it's great. Well, um, it doesn't matter. I'll fix it. Okay. Okay. And I'm sure there's some other people that are deserving that have passed too. So Here, we'll, we'll handshake on it because my word is as good as gold. By the time cool. this episode airs, I'll have it fixed. That was what you were going to mention, Liz, earlier. Hmm. What? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, did I get sidetracked? I blew my oath and, and didn't submit anything to Project on the Borderlands. Ah, yes. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, sorry. Oh, so, did I win the bet, Liz? <laughs> 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 yeah, Bob, last episode, uh, there's these guys who are doing some online uh, support and material called Project on the Borderlands, and they keep writing into us, and I keep saying every other episode, I really need to do something. I really need to send something in. And last episode, I said, I will swear I will submit something before episode 114, and I didn't. I even <sighs> called him out on the Save or Die Facebook page about it, hoping it yeah. would spur him to greater heights of creativity, but no. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I have an idea now. Oh, well, that's something. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to the interview. Yeah, back, back, back to yeah. Judges Guild. Okay. Jim talked about how he got some of his art back from submitting to Pegasus Magazine way back when. Um, yeah. And Judges Guild, you know, was known for its periodicals, you know, as well as for its, you know, adventures, settings, etc. Which um, worked, yes. Our periodicals, really, right? I mean, they- um, our journals, I think, is what you mean, right? Yeah, the Judges Guild Journal, the Dungeoneer, and Pegasus yeah. Magazine. Um, mm-hmm. you, you had the three, but they were each, you know, very different from one another. Um, what could you tell us about the differences between the three magazines that 
Judges Guild put out? Um, the Judges Guild Journal was very much like its title. It involved a lot of uh, who's our new employee and what are our new products. But at the same time, we had some interviews with uh, current um, game developers. Uh, we had submitted um, material from uh, gamers that would write in with ideas. I love uh, that on one of the a lot of advertisements. I love that on one of the pages yeah. you and Joseph showed at a seminar, it was a Judges Guild journal that had Chewbacca, a big picture of Chewbacca <laughs> in the middle of it because Star Wars had just been released. Yes, my dad would grasp at anything. I mean, uh, we were lucky enough uh, somehow to be, um, because we were fantasy and sci-fi related, um, uh, LucasArts sent us a big folder of 8x10 glossies. Uh, because the, at the time, I guess, they were really insecure about uh, how their movie was going to be received. But they sent us a big bulk. I've I've still got a lot of big 8x10 glossies of old Avalon Hill releases and movies like um, The Life of Brian and Ooh. what was it, Time Bandits and things like that. Wow. But, um, yeah, we would get submitted uh, little packets from if it had to do with the sci-fi or um, and my dad of course loved Star Wars so he was more than happy to throw that on the front and a lot of times we made more than it, we we would make a lot of use of Frazetta's artwork not so much because we wanted to bank on it but because dad and Frazetta were friends but yeah as far as how the the magazines differed the the Judges Guild Journal originally looked like a newspaper. It was done on newsprint very cheaply. Um, it was way less than a dollar at the time. I think it originally started at like 30 cents. And uh, we um, would hand them out at the high schools, the local high schools, the conventions, basically stick them in anybody's hand. Um, but then in like 1978, Dad um, managed to... He needed a editor for the things just started growing and he was too occupied with other things and he needed an editor for the uh, journal and he managed to contact Chuck Anshell of the Dungeoneer who was running out of Chicago and hired uh, Chuck to come down and actually move down. We were on our uh, university site at the time and uh, Chuck moved down and brought all his material and all his old layouts. And my dad said, well, you know, what are you going to do with the Dungeoneer? And Chuck's like, well, I don't know. And dad says, well, how about you sell it to us? And I forget exactly what the dollar amount was. I think it was, I think it was under a thousand dollars, but dad actually bought, um, the Dungeoneer IP from Chuck and with the idea of, well, maybe we'll release it too. And so we released a compendium uh, of the early Dungeoneers and dad really loved the Dungeoneer format, but we couldn't just run with it. Um, we, we, we wanted to enlarge it and stuff. And so we recently had changed the format of the, uh, the journal to a magazine type format with a slick cover and it would involve a fake color, three color, color, uh, separation, um, on the cover and uh, just basically newsprint inside. And we did the same thing with the Dungeoneer. And then for a while, um, we combined the two. I think there was one issue where it was split right in the middle of the cover, half Dungeoneer and half Journal. It became the Dungeoneer Journal after that for a while. The thing about the, the Journal was it was basically an internal magazine with advertisements of what we had planned and some submissions. With Dungeoneer, it was cram-packed with a lot of goodness from people like Paul Jackways, I mean, Paul Janelle Jackways, and Brian Hinnon, um, very good creative people. And of course, uh, Janelle Jackways is a an icon in the industry now. There are some Jim Ward uh, articles in those old Dungeoneers? Yes, and, and there was a lot of early um, stuff from other game developers that were really great ideas that just never took off and sprouted ring, wings, which still could today. Um, what was I going to say? There was something there. And then, then Pegasus uh, Magazine later. Oh, yes. Pegasus Magazine was a big, bulky 
fluffy thing where we never actually made use good use of the space. That was one of the things. The Dungeoneer magazine was a very small format that Chuck created out of his home, and it was cram-packed with material. A lot of it was good material. And with the Pegasus, the Imperial Pegasus, as it was first known, it just... It was big and bulky. We involved a lot of things that um, today you wouldn't run with, um, movie reviews and things like that. There's so many other places where people can get that information offline. But there is one little... Well, that explains how my artwork appeared in Pegasus number four, then. <laughs> <laughs> there is one You're little, finally um, dredging the bottom of the barrel. All right, let's give this 18-year-old stuff a shot. I'm sorry, Jim. No, it's okay. Um, <laughs> Now, one little story I will mention I'd like to tell about the Dungeoneer that is vivid in my memory is um, Chuck Anshell had to move from Chicago down to central Illinois, where we live here in Decatur. And he managed to room with a couple of other of our recent employees, which was um, Dave Sering, who was our traveler genius. He was the man that uh, wrote many of our traveler modules. And... Um, he also wrote uh, Wave Riders and Sea, Street, sea Steeds, which was ah. basically naval uh, combat. But when Chuck moved down, it was in November of 1978, and he arrived at the university site uh, in the evening. Um, it was me, Mark Homer, my dad, and um, uh, Bill Davis, who was another employee. And we were basically there to unload um, Chuck's van of all the Dungeoneer material that he had. And so uh, he had driven all night through a snowstorm. But that day was the day that they had released the Blues Brothers Briefcase of Blues album. And uh, nice. he, rode, he rode the four and a half hours down listening to the eight-track version of that album. And he said, man, once we got the van unloaded, he's like, man, this album is great. You guys got to hear this album. And a lot of us were into blues. In fact, Mark Homer was a, um, was a member of a local band at the time called Taxi, which he moonlighted with for many years. But so we all, after we unloaded his van, we all went out and sat in the snow in the, in the dark of the van and, and listen to the 8-track of the Blues Brothers' uh, Briefcase of Blues. Uh, <laughs> we actually listened to it twice, huddled around <laughs> our little foam cups of coffee and sitting there in the dark of the parking lot. But those are the kind of memories I have because I was a young boy and, and I really wasn't yet involved in the nuts and bolts. Once I was 18, I was made a, um, a member of the board of directors. I was put in charge of the art department for a while, cataloging and all the submissions. I was able to write payroll checks and things like that. Um, I sat in on all the board meetings and all the... One of the things that um, that was a turning point, I think, that we really should have jumped on, that I pushed for, that I just didn't get across to the group, was... Because um, my dad basically run it like... It was him and my mom basically were the owners. But at this time, Bill Owen had already left the company. And my dad's sister, Debbie, was a, was a partner. And there was a few others that were head managers. And they all basically had a vote of direction as far as um, what products we should go with and things. And at the time, um, I was given – they handed me some information one time, Dad did. Uh, a little-known Korean group called Konami had contacted us wanting to do a – game module for either Atari or Intellivision based on either Teagle Manor or Thieves of Batabascor. Oh, that would have been cool. And basically all we had to do was give them a license. Uh, they said that they would produce the, 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 the um, cartridge and everything for us, and yet all we had to do was pay for some advertising and distribution. I talked to them for a while about it, and I bothered to do a study. What I did was, at the time, this is how primitive we were. Um, I didn't know really know, know what to compare um, computer games with at the time. Um, at the time, Dad would play things like Avalon Hill's B-1 Nuclear Bomber, um, Santa Paravia, games like uh, Cosmic Trader, 
uh, things like this for the TRS-80 and TRS-82. Um, for a short time, we had an early color Apple computer. But um, So I went around to the uh, various arcades uh, indicators, Springfield and Champaign, and I managed to talk to the arcade managers, and I said, which games pull the most money? And I got the list, and then I would go to those games, and I would, make a, I would compile a list. Is it a side-scroller? Is it a jump-and-shoot? Is it first-person? Is it this or that? And I, w- I compiled this list, and I basically created charts which showed the most profitable elements to have in a computer game. And I tried to get Dad to go with this deal with Konami to create a dungeon crawl adventure. And I mentioned that TSR had already done this for Atari and in television, mm-hmm. and that we were basically going to miss out on a little field that was opening up. At Dad a time where everybody was trying to figure it out and do the same math you had just done. Yes, and Dad um, Dad refused it at the end, uh, saying, well, the the decision was really split. I wasn't a good presenter. I was never good at public speaking. And it was really my first presentation for the group, and it just didn't fly. And at the end, Dad said, well, we lost money on Trek 80, which was our first computer game for the TRS-80. And the bottom line was there just wasn't a lot of those units in people's homes. People couldn't afford them. This was different. I tried to explain to Dad, one of these days, a lot of people will have console games in their homes. Mm-hmm. And we had in television, and we had Atari both in our homes. And But Dad just didn't see it. And so he said, no, we lost a lot of money on Trek 80. We don't want to do that again. So it was shot down. And then, you know, five years later, they come out, uh, Konami comes out with Castlevania, which is a cross between a dungeon crawl and a haunted house. And mm-hmm. I, I always wonder, was Castlevania what they were trying to sell us? I mean, yeah. When you said Konami, it's like, yeah, they were one of the one of the main companies at the time. So they ended up being very big. Yes. Yeah. But at the time, we didn't know them, and they were Korean. Mm-hmm. And my dad just, who are these people? You know. Yeah. And then later, in in the late '90s and early, uh, well, from like 2000, I would say from like 1999 to 2004, maybe. He was involved with a Korean uh, online MMOG development uh, called... um, Lineage, right? uh, It was um, KRU Interactive's uh, Dark Ages, and the more popular one was called um, Kingdom of the Winds. Okay. Um, He developed both of those MMOGs um, and basically uh, was working on a, a royalty basis with them. He worked with others, but I don't I don't know how many others he worked with or who all he influenced. But he was definitely in on it. Things like Arcanum and uh, uh, the the one before Skyrim. What was it? Neverwinter Nights and things like that. Wow, that's a big one. So, well, I guess I can't blame him for being gun shy at the time, but it is a real yes. shame that nothing ever went anywhere well, with yeah, that. I and think. That's a, why and that's why I bothered to tell the story, because not only was I directly involved with trying to sell the board of directors on that direction, but it just failed. It, it just We just didn't go that direction. I, I, I thought the point of the story was you were super genius at a very young age. <laughs> no, nope, not at all. Not at all. I was just a kid that put a lot of quarters in machines. Well, I don't know if you want to use it, but I didn't really relate the story about how the uh, – the Pegasus logo was developed for JG. I actually drew that. But oh, wow. I don't know if that, that story needs to be related or if you want to include it. Please, please share it with us. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be fun. The company was just being formed. Dad and Bill Owen had decided to uh, start the company. Dad had approached other members uh, like Mark Summerlot and others, but they just didn't seem to want to invest money in Judges Guild as an entity. So um, Bill Owen agreed, and so they both put in a couple of hundred dollars. I think it was 150 a piece, a piece to pay for the first uh, print run of some of the early uh, dungeon maps and things. And uh, but my dad came to me one afternoon, and I was this was in 1975, 76, early 76, and I was sitting at the kitchen table. 
and he came to me, and I was leafing through my junior high yearbook, and I belonged to um, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt Junior High, which our logo, of course, was the Teddy Roosevelt Rough Riders. Mm-hmm. The cover of the yearbook had a um, image of Teddy Roosevelt with his saber up above his head, just like we have in our logo, and he's riding a steed, and it says Roosevelt Rough Riders right on it. And uh, my dad says, I need you to come up with a, with a company logo for us. And I said, um, well, what would you like? What would you like it to be? And he said, um, well, something like that. And he pointed at my yearbook, and I said, well, I can... I can draw anything you want. Just tell me what you want. And he says, well, I need it to be more fantasy, though. Can you can you make that horse into a Pegasus? Can you put wings on it? And I said, of course, I can do that. So um, the, that night and the next day, I whipped out a very detailed pencil drawing on an 8x10 of the um, logo. And Dad loved it. The next day, I showed it to Dad, and he loved it. And he took it to the print shop, and uh, the printer said, well, a lot of this is not going to come out. You're going to lose a lot of this detail. For what you want, um, if it isn't inked, it's not really going to come across. And so Dad whipped out one of his mechanical pens from his pocket, and on the counter of the print shop, he very hurriedly inked over the uh, pencil line drawing that I did um, in order to get the logo we have today. And in that hurry, in that rush, he failed to draw in the fingers of the right hand, which is upheld, which is holding the saber. So he he faced the hand backwards is what he did. Oh, he no. Put the left hand, <laughs> he put the left hand on the right hand of the warrior, See, on I, the right arm of the warrior. Yes. I guarantee you, so, because it happened to me, Everybody who's listening to this right now has seen that logo for 40 years and didn't notice it till you just told them. And they're <laughs> and all they're right. digging and, them out. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love telling the story is because they'll dig it out and look at it. And sure enough, it's a left hand on a right arm. And that was because Dad was rushed. And so he came home very proud with this big stack of the logos on, on both letterhead and envelopes. And he dropped them on the table. I just got off of school. And he's, he's, he was very proud, and he says, look at those. Look at how great those look. And I immediately, of course, instantly picked up on it. You got it <laughs> wrong. You messed it up. And he's like, what happened? And I showed him, and he said, um, his words were, well, I turkeyed it. Yeah, um, we'll call it the flying turkey from now on. And that was just a phrase he used at the time. And and so from then on, internally, we referred to it as the Flying Turkey. Within the guild, it was known as the Flying Turkey. And so... uh, Best logo story ever. (laughs) (laughs) Great. But years later, seven years later, I would be at the light table laying out something, and Dad would walk past me, and I actually remember him saying, okay, now, up in this corner, you want to put the shield with the turkey in it. (laughs) because that was the way he directed us you know put the shield in turkey in that corner cool okay well I think we will take this opportunity to um, end the episode normally we all thank you we all uh, wander don't go anywhere yet Uh, normally we wander down a dirt road to the theme of the Incredible Hulk TV show playing behind us but this time we're all getting into a blue police box to go directly to episode 115 so we'll see everybody at 115 see ya bye bye free arc
That, that Meat sounds, cookies. That sounds dreadful. Well, it's paleo. I mean, you know. So would a cave pear poop sandwich, but I don't eat that either. <laughs> yeah. And Bob's going, what the hell did I agree to? <laughs> I lay them low, 